Section 6, comprised of chapters 16, 17, and 18 of Life and Adventures of Frank and Jesse James by J.A. Dacus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by P.J. Landau. Chapter 16, Attempts to Arrest the Boys. The people aroused, detectives on the trail of the boys, their neighbors arrayed against them. Captain Thompson expresses himself. He is interviewed by Mrs. Samuels. Failure of all efforts to arrest them. Quote, the past we may never forget. The present swift its moments fly. The future we must trust it yet. And trusting will not sigh. End quote. After Gallatin, the situation of the boys became perilous. For although their denials and the affidavits which they were able to procure served to convince their friends that they were not at Gallatin, still the conviction had grown and deepened that they were concerned in the robbery, and that they had aided and abetted those who committed the crime, even if they were not present in person. Immediately after the perpetration of the outrage, Jesse W. James wrote a letter on behalf of himself and his brother Frank, offering to surrender to the officers of the law and submit to a trial, on condition that the governor should guarantee them against the chances of mob violence and lynch law in Davies County. After examining all the papers in the case and the facts submitted to him, Governor McClurg declared that he did not believe the boys had anything to do with the robbery and was fully convinced that they could not have been personally concerned in it. This had the effect of quieting the suspicions of many persons. But there were others who still cherished the opinion that they were the instigators of the robbery, and had aided the perpetrators in concealing themselves, and had doubtless shared with them in the booty which they had secured. In subsequent years, this opinion grew into a conviction, and now many believe that it was Frank James's pistol which proved fatal to Captain Sheets. Be this as it may, the people of Davies County were aroused, and many of the citizens of Clay County also. Indeed, all northwest Missouri was excited, this led to a systematic and persistent attempt to arrest Frank and Jesse James, the generally recognized leaders of the lawless elements of the state. Among those who firmly believed in the guilt of the James boys was Captain John Thomason of Clay County, Missouri, a citizen well known and highly esteemed by the people of the county. Captain Thompson had served during the war on the Confederate side and was known as a man of unimpeachable courage, the war over, he returned to his home and settled down to peaceful pursuits with an earnest zeal to repair the losses sustained during the war. He had been sheriff of Clay County at one time and was an outspoken friend of submission to law. He disapproved of the conduct of the James boys and believed that they ought to be arrested and tried for their misdeeds. So believing, he had the courage to act. Soon after the Gallatin robbery, Captain Thompson placed himself at the head of a posse of resolute men and started out to execute his purpose, the arrest of the Jameses. These men have never yet been caught unprepared. They cannot be surprised. They were aware of Thompson's purposes. They knew the feelings which he entertained for them, and they were ready to meet him. That meeting took place near the Samuels residence in Clay County. Thompson demanded their surrender. They laughed at the idea. Then firing commenced. The affray lasted but a few minutes. 
Several shots were fired, and by one of them, Captain Thompson's horse was killed. The other members of the party did not care to press upon men so daring, and Frank and Jesse rode away scatheless, and Captain Thompson had to regret the loss of a valuable horse. But this little episode did not deter the captain from freely expressing his opinion about the boys and those concerned with them. He had no admiration for the womanly qualities of their mother, and expressed himself in language much more forcible than elegant in regard to her. Some of his harsh sayings about her came to the hearing of Mrs. Samuels. She was much incensed against him on this account, and concluded to see him about it. It was ten miles from her residence to Captain Thompson's house, but she mounted a horse and rode the distance. She entered the house. The family was dining, and not the slightest attention was paid to her. She went up to where Captain Thompson was seated and said, Captain Thompson, I understand that you've called me a blank. Yes, I did, replied the sturdy farmer, and I want you to understand that if ever I or any of mine are injured by you or yours, in the least thing I swear before heaven and earth that there shall not be a stone left of your house. Indeed, was all the reply she made. If any killing is to be done, pursued the captain, it will be well for you to kill all my family and leave none to avenge the injury. Mrs. Samuel saw that Captain Thompson was in earnest and that no compromise or apology could be extorted, and she took her departure. The efforts of Captain Thompson were not all that were made for arresting the James boys about the time of the Gallatin tragedy. The Davies County officials hunted them. Detectives from Chicago and St. Louis tracked them and sought an opportunity to entrap them. But these shrewd men were not so to be caught. All attempts to capture them proved abortive. Chapter 17. Outrage at Columbia, Kentucky. The citizens of Adair County, Kentucky, startled. Bold daylight robbery at the Bank of Columbia. Murder of the cashier, Mr. Martin. Chasing the robbers, the marauders escape. Quote, Gold begets in brethren hate. Gold in families debate. Gold does friendship separate. Gold does civil wars create. End quote. The James boys were good travelers and did not confine themselves to narrow limits. One week they might be in Clay County, Missouri, the next in Nelson or Logan or Jessamine County, Kentucky, and then in five days more or less they would be in New York City, and in another week they might be found in Texas, far toward the Mexican border. The boys understood the advantages of rapid movements. When they had business on hand, they never appeared in the vicinity of the scene of their intended operation. Only one or two of their most trusted friends, under any circumstances, were allowed to know anything of their presence in the vicinity. When going to commit a robbery in a strange place, the utmost caution was used to keep down even the suspicion that anything was wrong. Thus it was with the band at Russellville and at Gallatin, Missouri. No one had seen them or even heard of any suspicious characters around. In both cases, the first intimation the citizens had of the presence of banditti in their streets was the reports of firearms and the shouts of the dashing robbers as they thundered along the highways. They appeared as suddenly as a meteor and departed as quickly as an apparition. Such were their tactics at Northfield, where the Jameses are known to have taken part in the attempt to rob the bank. Precisely the same order was observed on the occasion of the outrage at Columbia, Kentucky, which we shall now proceed to describe.
Columbia is a pleasant village in Adair County, in the middle part of the state of Kentucky. In the region of country in which Adair County is included, there are many of the relatives of the boys resident, and these were then also friends. Columbia is a quiet village, except during the terms of the courts which meet there, it being the seat of justice of the county. At the time which we are now considering, the courts were not in session, and no more sedate a town in all Kentucky could be found than Columbia. It was a lovely afternoon, April 29, 1872. The genial warmth of the sun had decked the earth in a carpet of green, clothed the trees in the forest, and called into being the myriad flowers, whose perfume scented the breezy air. It was mild, and one of those lazy, dreamy afternoons, when from the very excessive enjoyment of the beauties of reviving nature, men are disposed to fall into sweet reveries. But the quietude of Columbia was about to be rudely broken in upon. The repose of the beautiful spring day disturbed, and the place swept by a storm of excitement such as Columbia never experienced before. But we will not anticipate. At the hour of two o'clock on the afternoon of April 29, 1872, Mr. R. A. C. Martin, cashier of the Deposit Bank at Columbia, and Mr. Garnett, a citizen, and two friends, were sitting quietly conversing in the bank office. Neither of the gentlemen was armed, and no one could have anticipated danger. Everything in the village was quiet, and the country around was enjoying the blessings of peace. A half hour later, the equanimity of the gentlemen was disturbed by the entrance of three men, well armed, who with cocked pistols ordered the cashier to surrender up the keys of the safe. Another one attempted to shoot Mr. Garnett, but that gentleman saved his life by knocking up the pistol, but was burned slightly by the flame produced by the discharge. All this was the transaction of a moment of time. "'Will you give up the safe key, damn you?' shouted one of the robbers, with a cocked pistol presented at Martin's head. "'I will not,' was the answer. "'Then damn you, will you open the safe? Come, I've no time to wait. If you don't, I will blow your brains out. Come, will you?' "'I will not. I will d the words were cut short. The sentence was never completed. There was a loud report, an involuntary moan from lips that would never speak again, and the lifeless form of R.A.C. Martin, the brave cashier, fell heavily to the floor. The other three gentlemen were guarded by one of the robbers, who kept his pistol cocked and pointed at them, and in view of their dead friend, jested with them about the facility with which he could dispatch all three of them, they had witnessed a demonstration of his skill, and they trembled for their lives. Having disposed of the cashier, the two robbers who were in the bank commenced gathering up all the money and other valuables which were outside the safe. They tried to open the safe, but the combination was with the dead cashier, and the robbers were baffled. It was soon known that five men, splendidly mounted, had entered Columbia, at an hour when very few people were abroad, they were armed with heavy dragoon pistols, but as they were divided, two coming in on one road and three on another, the citizens did not take the alarm until they heard the firing at the bank. Two men held the horses of the three who went into the bank, and with pistols fired at everyone who appeared on the street, and by their savage yells and fearful oaths, they alarmed the people to such an extent that the place soon appeared as if it had been deserted. 
Gathering everything they could carry away that had the semblance of money, placing it in a sack, and one of them throwing it across his horse, the three robbers who had gone inside the building came out, remounted their horses, and with a shout which sent a thrill of terror to the hearts of the citizens of Columbia, they galloped away unmolested. The suddenness of the raid, the terrible character of the men revealed by the murder of so highly esteemed a citizen as Mr. Martin, the facility with which they shot a vein off a chimney, and their declarations that they would murder every man in the place, which declarations were accompanied by the most terrible oaths, all had a tendency to demoralize the men of Columbia. Surprise and consternation prevented immediate action, but when the cause of their fears no longer remained, they rallied, and then commenced a pursuit which continued until in the mountains of Tennessee, in Fentress County, one of the robbers who went by the name of Saunders was wounded and finally captured. This man was often seen by their friends with Frank and Jesse James. This is conclusive of the fact that the Columbia robbery was committed by the same gang who for some years are known to have aided the James boys and younger brothers in many of their depredations. It has been asserted by some persons in a position to obtain reliable information that Frank James was the leader in this raid, and that Bill Longley, the noted Texas desperado, formed one of the party. At any rate, none of the robbers were ever caught except the Texan, who went by the name of Saunders, and he was so fatally wounded that death closed his existence soon after. Martin, the murdered cashier, was a gentleman held in high regard by the people of Adair County, and was a member of the Kentucky legislature at the time of his tragic death. The failure to catch the robbers on this occasion had the effect of creating in the public mind the belief that an organized band of bank breakers existed, and sometimes the names of the Jameses and Youngers were mentioned as leaders of the band. Chapter 18. Out of Exile. Domestic and Social Relations of the Boys. Their Visits to the Cities. The Theaters and Concert Stage. Life in Hotels. How the Jameses Play the Part of Gentlemen. As Frank and Jesse James, the celebrated outlaws, live separate and apart from the rest of mankind, they have no confidence in men, and will not receive the confidence of others. Frank is a self-possessed, silent man, who cares little for the society of his fellows. Jesse, on the contrary, under some circumstances, might have become a rollicking, good-humored citizen, given to merry jests and healthy laughter. Both have schooled themselves to wariness and a caution which keeps guard over their words at all times. They are temperate to the extent of total abstinence from everything that could intoxicate. In brief, the James boys are brave as men ever become. They are daring but not reckless. They are intrepid to a degree perhaps unexcelled in any who have ever lived on this globe. No combination of circumstances or conditions can place them in a position to be surprised. In the midst of imminent personal danger, they are cool and collected, as if they are sitting at a table with a party of friends. They have made human nature a study, and have noted its every manifestation. They expect no mercy from a society which has long ago proscribed them, and they have little emotional regard to waste on that social organization which spurns them. Brothers in outlawry, separated from the balance of mankind by an impassable gulf which they have created themselves, 
They have learned to hate the representatives of law and order, and their defiance is not to be despised. Superadded to physical courage unequaled, they possess cunning and craft never surpassed, with mental gifts which, properly directed, might have made them renowned as leaders of men in the better walks of life. They are no trifling foes to the vindicators of lawful authority. These brothers, when under their true names, never even associate together. They do not travel the same road in company, and never travel the same way on the same day. Though never together, they are never far apart. If one needs assistance, the other is sure to be near at hand to render it. If one should fall, it is safe to assume that his fall would be terribly avenged by the other. They ride at will over the vast plains of Texas, nearly always alone, unless danger threatens, and neither savage aborigines or wild borderers can make them afraid. They are veritable roving kings of the plains. In the haunts of civilization, they are no less men to be dreaded and avoided. The quick pistol and the unerring aim cannot be despised. Dead men tell no tales, and the man who would betray will not return to reveal their counsels. Witcher sought them, and Witcher died. Askew would surrender them, and he too perished on his own threshold. They seem to possess the occult power of reading other men's very thoughts. Such are the characteristics of the James boys. Bold, shrewd, cool, deliberate men, who no danger can appall, no sudden surprise can disconcert. They are always ready, and can act instantaneously, whatever may be the emergency. But it must not be supposed that these men, though outlaws, are exiles from the haunts of men. As Jameses, they are seldom seen by even the most intimate of the associates of other days. But they are not always the terrible outlaws to the seeming of men, nor are they condemned to a lonely life away beyond the borders of civilization among wild herds and roaming savages. They have traveled much and have carefully studied they know the ways of the world and avail themselves of that knowledge to enjoy some of the privileges and pleasures of civilization. Many times when they were hunted in the out-of-the-way regions of the country, they have been enjoying life as respectable gentlemen among the citizens of our metropolitan centers. While Pinkerton's men have sought them among the forests of Clay County, Missouri, they have calmly reposed in the Grand Pacific Hotel of Chicago. While McDonough's staff hunted the outlaws in western Missouri, they were listening to the soul-stirring strains of Kellogg and Carey in St. Louis. It must be known that for years they have led a double existence. They have many names and are capable of assuming any character. The same circumspection in speech and action which enables them to successfully plunder a bank or overhaul an express train is carried with them into social life and enables them to make friends and secure immunity from annoyance and disarms all suspicion. The plundered money of an express train permits them to appear as gentlemen at the Fifth Avenue Hotel, New York, and Jesse James as Charles Lawson of Nottingham is not regarded as an outlaw in New York society. It must be remembered that the James boys are not altogether illiterate, nor did they spring from a parentage of uncouth, unlettered rustics, they have made voyages by sea, and have been thrown with persons of culture and refinement. Their father was a man of decided culture, and they have many relatives of education and refinement. 
an uncle of theirs is a somewhat prominent citizen of California, recognized as a gentleman of intelligence and good breeding. It is therefore not so difficult for them to play the role of gentlemen, even in refined society. The Jameses have various names which they assume as occasion requires. Another peculiarity of their method is the respectable character of their friends in their own immediate neighborhoods. These are respectable farmers and stock traders and merchants and what not. Among their neighbors they are kind and hospitable, and in every transaction scrupulously honest. On Sunday they are punctually at church service, and are usually liberal contributors to all neighborhood charities. No one would for a moment suspect that such persons could possibly be in league with the most desperate outlaws who ever lived. Such good neighbors and upright persons surely can do nothing wrong, so the people think. Among these, Frank and Jesse are not known under their own proper names, and if they were, it would make no difference. They are circumspect when with such people, and sometimes can assume the piety of Puritans. It is related of the boys that on several occasions after a great robbery, as known and respectable citizens, they have joined in the pursuit of the marauders without exciting the least suspicion that they were concerned in the affair. The following story of Jesse has been repeated among their acquaintances. One day, it was the second after the Corridan bank robbery, he was riding along a not much frequented highway when he saw two men in pursuit. Confident that they had not seen him, he turned his horse's head toward them and rode up the road to meet them. They were citizens, well-mounted and well-armed. Jesse wore Granger's clothes, and at once assumed a rustic simplicity which comported well with his garb. When he had approached near enough, he quietly saluted the robber hunters, and in a simple manner began to converse with them in the following style. Well, gentlemen, have you met anybody up the road riding of a horse and leading of another one? Because you see how I lives down in the Notter Way, and some infernal thief has gone off with my two best horses. I hearn about two miles further back at the blacksmith shop that a man passed there about an hour and a half ago with two horses, and they fits the description of mine to a T. Have you seen such? No. Where are you traveling from? Why, Lord, I come all the way from the Notter Way. The infernal thieves are just using us up that way. I wish I'd come on the infernal son of a sea cook who's taken my horses. I do, you bet. I'd go for em with these here irons, I would that. And Jesse revealed his weepins, as he called them. Did you see anybody on the road ahead? Not for some miles. I met four ugly-looking customers this morning. They looked like they might have been horse thieves themselves. Damn the horse thieves. Thieves are plenty nowadays. They come into towns and break banks in open daylight. How far did you say the four men were ahead? Well, I didn't say, but it must have been more than four hours since I meet them, and they were riding pretty fast, and I rid my horse almost down, as you can see. What kind of looking men were they, asked the robber hunters. Well, one was a sizable man with a long red beard and a flop-back hat on, riding on a big chestnut sorrel horse, and one more was a smallish man with very black hair and beard and sharp black eyes, and he was riding on a roan horse. And another was an oldish man with some gray among his beard, and he wore a blue hunting shirt coat, and he was a riding a gray horse. And the last feller was a little weasel-faced chap with tallowy complexion, 
who didn't wear no beard, and he rode on a dark brown horse. The two robber hunters then consulted together. That's their description, he said. Precisely, said the other. Shall we follow, asked one. I'd like to, replied the other. But there are four of them, was the remark and rejoinder. Yes, that is bad. If Ed, Dick, and Will would just hurry up. Those fellows are no doubt very dangerous men, was the comment of one. You bet they are, was the response. All this time, Jesse had listened as an interested party. Now he thought he was privileged to make an inquiry. "'What's up, strangers, anyhow?' Jesse asked. "'You blow it. Don't you know that the cord and bank up in Iowa was robbed yesterday?' Jesse opened his eyes in well-feigned surprise. "'You don't say so,' he ejaculated. "'Yes, in broad daylight, and the men you met are the robbers, no doubt. There's a big reward offered to catch them.' What's this country a-coming to, anyhow? Hoss thieves down in the Notter Way and bank rogues up in Iowa. Pears like hard-working honest folks can't get along much more. Could you go back with us? I'd like to, but the cussed hoss thieves will get away. Besides, you see, my hoss is mighty nigh played out itself. Howsomever, I might ride with you as fur as I can. Damn all thieves, say I, don't you? And Jesse actually turned around with the two pursuers of the robbers, in pursuit of another posse of pursuers which jesse had been enabled to accurately describe by having seen them pass him while lying snug in a dense thicket they might catch the robbers and as he'd have a sheer of the reward it would be better than nothing at all for his stolen horses for some miles he kept company with the robber catchers until his horse becoming lame and jesse getting near a railway station rendered further pursuit of the bank robbers distasteful to him, and as his excuse was received as valid, he bid his late traveling companions an enthusiastic adieu, boarded a night train, and was in the vicinity of home next morning. Those were Jesse's courting days. The writer of these pages has been informed by a reputable citizen of St. Louis that at a time when the detective forces of both St. Louis and Chicago were out in the western part of the state hunting for the james boys and younger brothers that he saw and conversed with jesse james on the corner of fifth and chestnut streets st louis and that on that occasion jesse attended the opera max straykosh's troupe being then in the city of course jesse james was not the name the people called him by but he was to all seeming mr william campbell a most respectable shipper of cattle from Wichita, Kansas. As Mr. Campbell, he had business relations with many of the citizens who esteemed him as a very clever gentleman. At that time, according to the statement of the gentleman upon whose authority this incident is given, Jesse remained in St. Louis a number of days. His associations were excellent, and he was a visitor on Change, and ventured even into the Four Courts building, in company of a well-known citizen who was, of course, ignorant of his true name and character. It is believed that during this trip he made banking arrangements, and that the boys now carry a heavy bank account in some St. Louis bank. Of course, this business is transacted under assumed names. End of Section 6